having the inbuilt process and culture by which when value is changing, you're also thinking about how monetization should be changing. It doesn't mean you're always changing monetization or monetizing every feature. That's not what I'm saying. But having that be a continual conversation because your market's always changing, your product's always changing, because it's a little bit more difficult, let's say, to put the cat back in the bag after you know customers, you got it for free, you close that deal, you come around later and be like, oh, now we're going to charge you. Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill, cheesy, humdrum, bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women with errors in their backs who go through hell to achieve their goals. They'll go through anything to make it. They bathe in hell and high water, a cut above. They're intolerant to mediocrity, the status quo, and yet they're the nicest people you'll ever meet. This is Disruption Interruption. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. This show is sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we are here today to talk to another industry leader that has steered off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Ladies and gentlemen, prepare for an electrifying episode today because our guest disruptor is an industry maverick. He's a visionary founder and a true pricing prophet for the world of high-volume B2B SaaS CEOs. Now, he's got a track record that spans from startups to publicly traded giants in both B2C and B2B spheres, and he really is a true sage in the field of digital marketing and e-commerce. Now, his specialization is in pricing and product strategy, and it's caused ripples of innovation throughout the industry. So you may ask, why are we sitting down with this maestro of economic insights today? Well, let's just say he's more than a maestro of pricing. In the midst of zero interest rate policy mindset from the past 50-year inflation forecast and the shifting macro environment, he's here to expose the truth of growth at all costs, fallacy, and the consequences of tech companies having to slash headcount. And guess what? It's all around this mantra that will blow your mind of value illiteracy. So prepare to have your understanding of the business world disrupted and your economic horizon expanded. Please welcome our chief pricing officer at Product Tranquility, Dan Belkowski. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. There's no way I could live up to that introduction, but I appreciate it nonetheless. (laughs) Live up to it. Yes, own it. (laughs) (laughs) Did you hear the crowd in the background? I did. I did. It was deafening. Thank you. (laughs) You're so welcome. All right. So Things have changed for SaaS, and pricing is a big conundrum. But before we get into that, why don't you tell our listeners, what is your fundamental ingredient for disruptive innovation? Again, thank you for having me on the show. I really do appreciate the time and the attention of your audience. I think one of the things that's really become clear to me from multiple different functions in the software industry. I've been in the software industry my entire career, engineering, product management, product strategy, product marketing, and now helping companies with pricing. The thing that's 
been consistently reinforced for me is whoever's closest to the customer wins. Where I see that now on a day-to-day basis is companies perpetually want to sell the way they want to sell, not the way customers want to buy. They want to build products that they want to build, not what customers need or value. And that comes obviously across the spectrum. There's obviously very, very successful companies that that don't do that, but unfortunately, they're not the majority. I have a friend of mine. She is a, also innovation consultant, and she actually wrote a blog post I was reading this morning. It was fascinating because one of the, my mantras is talk to your customers. If you give me a billboard, I put anything on it. Be talk to your customers. But she was pointing out what she sees as an innovation consultant, which is. While my intuition on that billboard is correct, it's incomplete because what she's talking about was companies doing all this research, going and talking to their customers, and then just ignoring what the feedback is and doing what they want to do anyway. And just have never seen that be successful because at the end of the day, we live in a dynamic market. And if you're not going to build what your customers want, what they need, and sell in the way that they want to buy, you've got an easy option next door. That is so true. It's pretty profound. (laughs) Whoever's closest to the client wins. You know, I do have to say, I mean, even in my own industry, I have seen really vast amounts of research into public opinion about what people really wanted presented to management and management decides to ignore, (laughs) right? And you're talking about this being done in the SaaS world, right? Why do you think that is? Do you think it's because they can't confront changing what they need to do to make it acceptable to the client? Do they just blindly think they're going to just win them over if they do enough marketing? Like, what do you see as the fallacy? We know what the fallacy is in this, but what do you see as the reasoning behind it? It's difficult because it's a broad swath of organizations that we're talking about. And I think each of them has their different characteristics and rationale why. Let me zero in on maybe a smaller kind of subsegment of that industry. And so normally I help companies who I call scale up B2B SaaS companies. The scale up I don't know if there's an accepted industry-wide definition, but let's just say they're you know, generally in that 20 to 50 million revenue range. And so what's happened at that point is founder or set of co-founders have built a company. It's been successful. You don't get magically to 20, 50 million overnight. And so they've built something people want and people are buying it. And then you've got a set of incentives at play. So you've got to let go of the day-to-day operations of a business as a founder. And so while you as the founder CEO may have intimate knowledge, because you were probably there on the front lines on day one, there was no one else. You were selling, you were building the product, you were selling the product, you were marketing the product, you were doing support, (laughs) you know, you're coding it on the weekends, you're fixing bugs, you're doing every job, but now you're running an organization. And so I think there's one of those transitions is it can be difficult to realize what's changed. And it's not that you as the founder or leader or the leadership team in general is not intelligent. These people are incredibly intelligent, incredibly capable. 
know their market very well. But what's happened is they're now receiving all their information through a filter. So what I mean by that is uh, you've now hired maybe your first product management team, your sales teams, right? So they're not on the phone every day with customers, right? And, you know, they can't listen to every single sales call, right? No matter how, (laughs) the best efforts of of people like Gong and Chorus, et cetera, right? To summarize, like, so you only get the highlight reel. And what might be the highlight reel? We know this from the news media. It's whatever is sensational. It's whatever is extreme. It's not whatever is common and relevant. And so there's this filter, right? And it's no one's fault, but you're getting that information through a filter. The other thing that's happened besides that is you're not on the front lines and there's a new set of incentives to in order to keep growing. Now you need to might be selling to people who weren't in your original target market. And those people have different needs. And because you're not on the front lines, you know, what looked good on, we're going to go into this space and attack this market and you know, it's just not working and, but you're, you're using your playbook that worked five years ago. Success is a hell of a teacher because it tends to be reward us for the success that we've had and blinds us to the things that won't work again in the same way. Yeah. So I think those are a couple of things that tend to happen. Uh, And so then kind of those filter bubbles combined with, you know, changing market dynamics and not being directly on the front lines makes it very difficult to sort of see what's going on. That makes total sense. And so you, you're dealing with stale dated information or a stale dated viewpoint. So let's talk about what's changed for SaaS, right? I mean, we've mentioned several things, right? You've got the ZERP mindset. You've got this like shifting macro environment, you know, growth at all costs, create a, a certain type of growth or whatever. And things have changed in the market. SaaS was you know, relatively new a while ago, and now it's a bit more mature. And so things have changed. Let's talk mm. about that and how this has affected pricing. Mm. Well, I think, look, anyone who is interested in this topic is ultimately concerned about growth. And there's really only three ways to grow a SaaS business. There's acquisition, monetization, and retention. For better or worse, Acquisition takes up all oxygen in the room and has for years. And I think when it was exacerbated, like the free money environment we've been in, people will talk about it since it was like 2020. It's like, no, we've been in a free money environment for 12, 13 years, 14 years now. And so I think it created a lot of, again, you know, not no bad people but bad incentives because what became success, if you look at the crop of companies that have IPO'd since 2009, a lot of them, especially in the SaaS space, have not been profitable or continually not be profitable. I think Salesforce made giant news six months ago and Mark Benioff said, oh, we're going to be profitable you know, a big cheer went up and they're the, they're the granddaddy in the space, $30 billion a quarter a year. I can't remember exactly the number off the top of my head. So what, what was the lesson learned? It was like, well, I don't need to be profitable 
all I need to do is raise the next round of the higher valuation, right? My investors win because they get to mark up all their investments, which looks good for their LPs. The founders get to take out a secondary, right? Cash out. Um, everyone gets an IPO, but profitability, where's profitability to be found? And you see this you know, every day looking at a lot of these companies that are, you know, mature companies that are now public and you go look at their PL and you're like, oh my God. And so what, what's now changed is- Well, before you talk about what's changed, right before you get to that, you know, our audience is like, let's not assume that they know, they may have mm-hmm. an idea, but let's really spell it out. Like what did that mindset do, <laughs> Right. And how did that affect their pricing? Yeah. So, so what I think, you know, the focus was on customer acquisition. Mm-hmm. So that growth at all costs mindset was really, you know, if we can get more customers in the door, that is what companies are being valued at. So I, I, I've, I've looked at this analysis. I haven't done it directly. There are other companies out there that uh, or other firms out there have done it more directly. But, you know, if you looked at, for example, SaaS public company valuations, and you ended up doing a statistical analysis to figure out what the driver of their overall valuation was, the dominant factor there was ARR growth. Uh, It wasn't based upon retention. It wasn't based upon some of these other things. So the lesson people learned is if I I want to chase the highest valuation, because that's what matters, not profitability. And to do that, I don't care about being profitable. I care about how much, how fast I'm growing. And so what people did was they took their money and you know, there's, I think there's a, uh, I haven't verified this, but it's kind of a joke, semi joke uh, slash myth going around the uh, SaaS world that, you know, it's like 70 cents of every dollar invested into SaaS companies actually ends up at Google or Facebook because they all just bought paid acquisition, you know, through uh, social or, or or search channels, thinking like, oh, if I just continue to acquire customers, like that equals success. And so what I think is now kind of reset expectations is like, okay, we, you know, there's a bunch of things that happen there, right? So Apple with their privacy controls, um, and you just had un, is untenable because everyone was just bidding up everyone else's cost per right. clicks. And so everyone realized like, okay, I just can't keep setting this pile of money on fire for paid marketing to continually grow. I got to look at how else I'm going to grow. Oh, by the way, like the free money train looks to be running out. It's getting harder and harder to raise money or the valuations aren't nearly as attractive as they were. And so, you know, what I think you saw is starting in uh, probably mid last year, 2022, you had the cutting, right? So it was First, the marketing budgets get slashed. Then we started laying off employees. And I still think you're still, th- you're having, not seeing the layoff news as much anymore, but I think it's still happening and it's happening to people I know, very good people too. So, so I think the easy cuts have all been made. Not p- companies are still making deeper cuts. But I think the fundamental problem that companies are now faced with is you can't cut your way to growth. So going back to what I was saying before, we're, you know, and tying it back to the monetization, right? Acquisition, retention, monetization are the only real ways to grow. And people realize like, hey, we stayed a little too long at the punch bowl on the acquisition train. We're cutting as much as we can to extend burn. And now how do we grow? And so it's shifting some of these focuses to retention and monetization, which I think is long overdue. I agree with you. And retention and monetization automatically assumes or should assume that you really need to know what the clients want or the clients that you really want want, right? (laughs) 
which comes down to also pricing what the market mm-hmm. will really bear right mm-hmm. and okay so we've had free money you could say right and now we have this you know inflation forecast and you know and there's things that have matured and changed for pricing so mm-hmm. what did they do before what i saw and continue to see you know from clients that you know i talk to is in this sugar rush high that was you know 2020 2021 companies were still building product still increasing the value of their offerings but what we were doing was because they were really focused on showing these you know metrics that maybe weren't the long term most healthy what they tended to do instead was say okay we're going to ship this feature but we're not going to talk about pricing or monetization right so we're adding this value but we're just going to include it because the goal there is we just want to add value so we can increase it's a it was a market share play because it was like grow 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 just give customers what they want we want to close those deals long term i think there's a there's another myth that whether it's truth or myth i think it's still tbd but there's this idea of subscription is such an attractive business from an investor shareholder perspective because it has this idea of yeah it, they require a lot of capital to start but they're this flywheel that eventually turn into this annuity of just money that comes in the door and so eventually you could turn off all your sales and marketing r&d and you just have this perpetual annuity throwing off cash flow which from an investor perspective looks very very attractive and so i think that was sort of the dominant mindset was well look yeah we know we're not monetizing now but we'll do that you know <laughs> we'll do that later so uh-huh. what tended to happen so so they didn't monetize then so i'll give you a concrete example of what that looks like so what would happen then is, so say you've got a uh, user seat-based pricing metric. Mm-hmm. So uh, the CRM market, like if your Salesforce is is very popular with this type of uh, metric. And look, it, seat-based metric has its place. I'm not, you know, I'm not pro or con. It really depends on the situation. But, you know, if everyone's expanding, let's use the CRM market. If everyone's expanding headcount, right, you've got a nice tailwind of expansion dollars that are coming in. And again, not that these people aren't smart, that they're not, that everyone at the company is probably working incredibly hard, but you've got this tailwind because all your customers are just adding additional seats. And so, you know, that debt revenue retention number is going up. Uh, your expansion is just going up kind of in the background. But then you have a tide turn of a macroeconomic you know, what looks like to be a recession, a vibe session, I, I think is my favorite term at the moment. We're all still waiting for the recession numbers to actually Off prove. recession, like we just, yeah, so yeah. many things for it. Yeah, we don't, we don't know. But so now, you know, then people start doing layoffs, they start reducing headcount. Yeah, so or that, really that, looking at their, like, who's really using these seats? Before we didn't care. Oh, we're not using all of them. Let's cut it yeah. back. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And so those tailwinds turn into headwinds. And then you realize, oh, by the way, we've added all this value. So let's continue to use a CRM example. All that value we added in the run-up in the market expansion that we didn't monetize for. Now we're going to charge you for it. Well, that's the question that people are asking me because what ended up happening is they sort of sowed the seeds of their own demise because the value that they added allowed the people who were left to be even 
you know, it was, they were valuable features. Usually what is value? It's like, oh, you as a worker can do more with less. We've have all these automations. We have all this AI. We can do all these amazing things, right? Which helps you close a deal and like your, your customers are super happy. But then you turn around and you're like, oh no, all the seat-based revenue is going the wrong direction. We're, we're in a, a macro recession. So new business error is harder to come by. Our, cus- our existing base is shrinking and we haven't done anything to monetize. I would say if there's a lesson learned here is having the inbuilt process and culture by which when value is changing, you're also thinking about how monetization should be changing. It doesn't mean you're always changing monetization or monetizing every feature. That's not what I'm saying. But having that be a continual conversation because your market's always changing, your product's always changing, because it's a little bit more difficult, let's say, to put the cat back in the bag after you know, customers, you got it for free, you close that deal, you come around later and be like, oh, now we're going to charge you. And it was a great story this week uh, about uh, there was this game developer called Unity, and they did a price change that absolutely blew up in their face. And actually, the CEO resigned uh, earlier this week. Uh, just, but it, it was a bit of this. It didn't go well for them uh, at all. And uh, I'm going to do a write-up on it at some point uh, because it was it was pretty pretty poorly executed. But it was a little bit of this, hey, well, like, we're going to go back. <laughs> like, we're in this bad position, so now we're going to go back into this well. And they just got this blowback of destruction of customer goodwill that just wasn't for them. So what I'd say is the the prescription is don't get yourself in that situation. Be proactive about your monetization up front. So I think a lot of people got behind their, um, behind the eight ball, shall we say, uh, not being able to maneuver properly because they put themselves in this situation over the past several years. Yeah. It's a contagion (laughs) 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 of of whatever you want to call it. Right. (laughs) So, you know, how should the pricing be looked at? I mean, you look at, you talk about value illiteracy. Let's talk about that a little bit and set the premise for that, because it's a really good point. We talk about financial illiteracy and other, but value illiteracy. And that is, you know, someone doesn't have the ability to assess something and understand it. They don't have the intelligence to assess something and understand. They're not open to the fruits of observation, right? I mean, that's Mm. the ultimate definition of illiteracy. So how is value illiteracy planned to this? Mm. Well, I wouldn't make a point that anyone is is suffering from the lack of intelligence, but I think what ends up happening in the corporate world is we tend to use a lot of words without having a definition of what it actually means. Guess what? Uh, so- That's illiteracy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It is. It is. Or, or not a, a shared definition. Right, because communication is all about a shared definition, and I'm a big fan of removing the illusion of communication. Because if you and I sit here and we have a discussion about value, it's very easy for us to walk away with entirely different concepts of what we just talked totally. about. I feel this. We could have the same conversation about what a market is, uh, what a market segment is, uh, what product market fit is, what a minimum viable product is. There's all these terms that get thrown out there, and People think they're talking about the same thing. And then, they, again, this illusion of communication happens, and then everyone realizes that they're disappointed. And so going back to how, why are we talking about value in relation to pricing? Because core philosophy of mine is that pricing's relationship to value is fundamental. There's two real fundamental relationships pricing has, which is one to value and one to volume. In many industries, you'll see much more emphasis put on volume 
This is your famous you know, supply and demand curves. You maybe got taught in Economics 101. However, in SaaS or for innovative products in general, the more important aspect of pricing is value uh, because value clarification tends to be the more significant lever. Like if I'm going to come sell you, will you stay, you stay in the world of CRM markets just so we don't uh, <laughs> litter the, the playing field with too many uh, industry types. So, you know, you've got, you, you're in the market for a CRM, right? And you're, uh, you've got a certain amount of sales staff. So like, I'm not going to necessarily encourage you to buy more seats because of my, my price. What is more struggle is like helping you understand what is my differentiated value of, of my CRM versus what you're doing today, which might be status quo. Maybe your salespeople are using, you know, spreadsheets uh, or some other tool we're dislodging, or maybe it's, you know, maybe it's entirely, you know, Greenfield. And so we want to think about value in relation to pricing. It's based on this fundamental premise that intelligent pricing management, especially in the, B, in the B2B SaaS world, rests on a foundation of intelligent value management. So we really have to understand what value is. So Okay, let's that, clear some words here. Since we're okay. talking about a little, let's like, what does that term mean? What does value mean? Yeah, what does value mean? And that other term that you just said, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> the one you just said, like the term, the whole, the whole phrase. Um, oh, I'm not sure what I just said. Uh, I just, I just blacked <laughs> so out. I don't know. Either I, I blacked out too because I don't know what value means here. So, what right. is value so mean? I, so, so where I go with value is. I use a framework I didn't invent. I, I stand on the shoulders of giants, uh, but uh, there's two frameworks that inter- intersect. So I'll, I'll mention them here and then we'll dive into it. So uh, first is called the Value Cascade. Uh, value Cascade, for those who are interested, was created by a gentleman named Tom Nagel. He wrote a seminal book in pricing back in the late 70s called The Strategy and Tactics of Pricing. I highly recommend it. It's in like its seventh edition now, um, but it's sort of the Bible of, of pricing for anyone who's, who's interested. It's pretty dense, I will warn you, but uh, it's well worth the slog. Um, and in there, he it's introduces the, uh, the Strategy and Tactics of Pricing okay. by Tom Nagel. Okay. And the other framework I, I use is called Jobs to Be Done. Uh, has many fathers. Theodore Ted Levitt, who was a marketing professor at Harvard Business School back in the '60s, uh, all and probably more prominently known is uh, Clayton Christensen, also uh, the late Clayton Christensen, also uh, recently deceased, unfortunately, a Harvard Business School professor, along with uh, Bob Mesta and Tony Olick. But those two. Let me go into uh, Value Cascade first. So, idea of the Value Cascade. It would help if there was a visual format, but I'll just describe it in words. Cascade, another word for cascade is a waterfall. So if we yep. think about a bar chart with slightly uh, decreasing bars as we go as we go along, right? So so it's kind of waterfalling along. At the far left, we have this idea of use value. So value on its own is incredibly ambiguous. And so one of the things I really like about the idea of the value cascade is that we get very prescriptive by determining what type of value are we talking about? So use value is the sum of all potential benefits a customer could receive from the product. Economists sometimes refer to this as utility. And this intersects with the idea of jobs to be done. So jobs to be done outlines customers don't buy products, but they hire them to get a job done. And it outlines different types of customer jobs. So the first type of, of job to be done is a functional job. So that is a, a job that has a functional outcome. It saves me time. It saves me money. It increases the amount of money I make. Uh, it, it reduces risk. 
then there are two types of emotional jobs. There's a personal job and social job. A personal job has a emotional outcome. So it makes me feel safe. It reduces my anxiety. It increases my confidence. It increases my status. And then there's a third type of job to be done, which is a social job, subtype of emotional jobs. And the social job is humans aren't just in it for themselves. We have pro-social behaviors. And so if you think about a government entity or an NGO or a nonprofit, they're trying to work towards some climate action or increase access to voting rights or to education or to healthcare, right? Those are pro-social goals, right? So we we don't think a, a, a government doesn't have, well, it has revenue in terms of taxes, but you know it creates value, but the value it's creating isn't the same as we think of, of a, a commercial entity of a business creating value for its shareholders. It's creating pro-social value, right? So we so we think want to think about those types of values. The thing is, is that- and That's all for, under use value. That's Thank all you. under use value. Okay, I get it. The thing is, for a pricing exercise, use value is not really useful, right? Like we would never talk about, if you were trying to sell me a car, you would never say, well, Dan, the car gets you from A to B because, well, it better, it's a car, right? (laughs) You know, right? It's like, if it, if it doesn't do that, like, I don't know, what is this thing you're trying to sell me? Um, That begs the, the difference that, you know, value is different for different people or different uses, I would say. So what, so what Nagel introduces, this is idea of exchange value. So, so utility or use value is mainly irrelevant for price setting because the market sets the price for undifferentiated value. So that car getting you from A to B is undifferentiated value, right? The the market has already set a price for that. And so yep. you're so you want to be looking at what is the difference. And so one of the ways I've used to describe this is, you know, imagine we've got Elon Musk with all his billions of dollars, maybe less billions now that he's uh, invested in Twitter or X whatever we're calling it these days. And Elon's got stranded on a desert island. Now he's pulling the Tom Cruise castaway shtick. And he doesn't have a way off. And he's Tom Hanks castaway. Oh, yeah. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Correct. Yes, correct. Sorry. It's been, been a while. <laughs> I just remember Wilson was really, really Wilson. the star of that movie. <laughs> yes. so, so Elon's stuck on the desert island. And ship captain finally comes by. Says, Elon, I'm here to rescue you. The question is, how much should Elon pay to get off the island? The answer for our listeners is as much money as he has in the bank and as much money as he could beg and borrow from friends because all of his money in the world is not doing him any, has zero utility on that island. And he getting off that island, he should be able to maximize how much he's, he's willing to pay, right? So that would be the idea of, of use value. But now imagine ship captain number two pulls up to the pier just as they're having this little discussion. Ship Captain Two says, "Well, hey, Elon, I'll pay you. I'll, I'll, I'll take you there for just a million. Not, you don't have to pay your billions." So now there's a market. We've got two sellers. There's now a market, and so now what Ship Captain One has to do is say, "Well, Elon, actually, you know, I'll do 1.1, and the reason is is because you know you can stay in my my captain's quarters, and uh, we have a band on deck that will ha- provide nightly entertainment, and you know I'll I have a I have a chef that will cook you you know fantastic meals, etc. And so now what are they doing? They're competing on differentiated value. So this is the idea of exchange value separate from use value because getting back to civilization now has a market price. So now the thing is, that's not where the cascade ends. 
we now need to take into account this idea of perceived value. So we can go through this and that, you know, this is sort of a, a toy example here with the Elon on a desert island. But you know, we do this all the time with, especially in B2B purchases, especially B2B software. Like, hey, there's going to be some, you know, economic benefit. You're, you're going to help. You're going to be able to be more efficient. We're going to reduce your costs. We're going to help you make more revenue, right? You can imagine every uh, web page from every uh, SaaS company you've ever seen, right? It pretty much we're, we're hitting on those value propositions. But look, at the end of the day, humans are not spreadsheets. We're not homo economicus, this fully rational actor that knows everything about every product that's on the market and all of the, the features that differentiate it. So you can put yourself in the shoes of your standard B2B SaaS buyer. We'll stay in the CRM market. You got some, you know, CRO, VP of sales says, hey, director of sales, we need to get CRM. Go find us one and bring us back some options. So what does that guy do? He goes, asks his buddies at other companies, hey, what do you guys use? Maybe he goes to Trust Radius or G2 or, you know, maybe he attends Saster and like asks around, right? So he gets a short list. Some of those companies make it on, some don't make it off. So he doesn't even know all of the companies that are available. And then he's got a day job. He's doing his purchasing in his spare time, quote unquote, spare time. And so, you know, he's maybe getting some demos. He's reading some reviews. He's looking at web pages. He's seeing social proof. You get the logo gardens on the web page. Like, oh, well, this is used by JP Morgan. This must be good, right? I don't know. Um, the publicity, the, the review. You know, but he that. doesn't, but he doesn't know, you know, one is uh, all these, these software is complicated, right? He, Maybe if you enumerated all the features that might be relevant to customers, you know, even sort of middle of the range pieces of software might have 250 different, you know, enumerated features. You know, this is probably the bane of marketers in the technology world everywhere, right? It's like, no one's, you got to, we got to pick like three or four we're going to talk about because nobody's going to remember, you know, even past four, right? So, so look, they're going to make shortcuts, right? We're not going to, they're not going to know all the differentiation of features. They're not going to know all the players. And so, when it comes to this idea of perceived value, we really have to understand that these customers are not omniscient actors. And although we might be able to make a perfectly rational spreadsheet-based case for the economic value we return, the value we provide is and are able to charge for is only as much as in the minds of our customers. That is the only thing that drives willingness to pay. And so that is where we finally get to the pricing world from the value world in willingness to pay. And so that entire stream there, we you can imagine that when you have a conversation in the building talking about value, whether it's the, the, the finance person or the CEO or the marketing person or the product person, they may all be referring to different aspects of that value. They may all be, absolutely. And all of them have some sort of perception of what that value is to them. Mm-hmm. So. This tells me that you know a lot about pricing, right? <laughs> Which is why they call you or why you have the company called or the chief of product tranquility, which I love, right? So in a nutshell, elevator pitch, what's the innovation with pricing and why can you help people on this at this point? What is the innovation with pricing? 
Yeah, your innovation with pricing. Mm. But like, you know, how is it that you can help people with this? Well, look, I think there's a couple of different things to think through. So one is that pricing is not an event. It's a process. And many companies don't treat it that way. And so it's not functionally owned in as much as you have somebody. This is this kind of what happens. Couple, two, three co-founders get together. They decide to start a company. You know, they write in the product, write the software in the garage. And they launch the business. They're like, oh man, we got a customer. We would charge something for it. So they spend four hours in an afternoon in a conference room with each other, trying, or maybe in the garage, trying to figure out what they should price the package with. And they kind of do that and set it aside. Company starts growing. They got to hire more engineers to build more code. They got to help hire support people to answer uh, customer questions. They got to hire salespeople to sell it more. And eventually you get a, you get a real company there. And at no point did they say, ah, we got to bring someone in to like no pricing. So pricing kind of sits there un, unloved, orphaned. Uh, it's causing all sorts of friction, but nobody really owns it. Nobody really knows what to do about it. And it's at this intersection of important and uncomfortable because it's important because it affects every part of the company. Your CEO, the CFO is worried about margin and burn. Uh, sales is worried about how it's going to affect their quota and amount of deals they can close. You know, marketing is worried about how it's affecting their positioning, competitive, you know, uh, place in the in the market. You know, product is 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 worried about it. You know, customer success, trying to get the renewals. So, you you know, it's going to either it's going to impact everyone's life if it changes, and so everyone kind of looks at it and says, "Oh man, this I, it kind of has to change." But also, like, I don't know anything about it, and I don't know what to do about it. And maybe, you know, what, what tends to happen in companies is maybe you get a go-getter and they're like, oh man, I'm going to, I see there's a ball laying there. I'm going to pick it up and run with it. Um, you do that once with pricing and you, you, re, you learn your lesson. You probably won't do that again uh, because, <laughs> because then you uh, quickly realize what product managers know, which is everyone thinks they're a product expert and everyone thinks they could do your job. Uh, it's like, you know, have any product people out there, you know, how many sales people be like, look, if product would just get out of the way, it's only got to be 10 lines of code. Like the engineers it's can get so it done true. this week. That's so happened. But why do we have these product people just always saying no to stuff? They're always getting in the way, right? But, and you'll find out that everyone becomes a pricing expert as soon as you try to change the pricing. It's like, well, you know, <laughs> the problem is while they all know what to do, nobody aligns on the same thing to do. They all have different directions. Uh, so why <laughs> so, so why is it helpful to have someone uh, come in from the outside? One, because they don't have a political stake in the outcome. Uh, like any product decision, there's no silver bullets. There's only trade-offs. And usually what that means is that someone at the executive table is going to be upset with the decision. And so it helps to have an outside third party who doesn't have a political outcome uh, in the, in the, at stake uh, be uh, helping to, to wrangle that along. Also, uh, it helps to increase the, there's a literacy across the board. We've only touched on value literacy in this conversation. But, you know, one of the things that, often happens, you know, in SaaS, you know, most executives think that what you charge determines your success. In fact, who and how you charge determines your success. So I think most executive teams are probably having a conversation about the price level 
when they have conversations about pricing at all, they're like, oh, should it be $10 a user or $20 a user? Or $19.95, should I price it in fives or nines? And I look, I love those conversations, but there's so many more dimensions to pricing and packaging that are actually much more important and impactful. And so if you don't even understand that area exists, I I go to a doctor, I'd be like, my knee hurts. Doctor doesn't write his chart, knee hurts, right? He's like, he's like, Patients, uh, medial collateral ligament, when did it start? What, right. what happens when you do this? What happens when you do that? But there's, there is, there's, you know, I think what it's looked at is there, you know, there's more, uh, this black box magic voodoo, uh, more art than science. Well, look, there's, there's art and science to it. I won't deny that, but it's definitely more science than art. Um, and so look, if you're, if you're going to touch it, it's going to impact everyone. It's going to be very important. So what ended up happening then is, is that nobody touches it, but then everyone still sort of looks at each other like, Oh, we know something has to be done and it just doesn't get done. And then um, you end up not growing as fast as you, as you could. Well said. And I think you have really exploited this full picture. Uh, like I want to know more. <laughs> I'm listening to you. I'm thinking of my listeners and I'm like, Oh hell yeah, we need to get a hold of this guy. How do people get a hold of you? Yeah, well, I'm happy to connect with folks on LinkedIn, Dan Balkowski, and uh, just let me know you heard me on the podcast so I could separate it from the rest of the LinkedIn spam. And I try to blog about this stuff fairly regularly at producttranquility.com. So you can also reach out to me there. Fantastic. And what do you do when you're not geeking out on pricing? What are your crazy passions? Mm, Mostly these days, it's meditation and watching YouTube videos about AI. <laughs> okay, that's my favorite. <laughs> that's fantastic. You need the meditation because you realize the AI is going to kill us all. And then you need to like calm yourself down from the panic attack that's going to happen. So they, they go together. That's so good. That's so very good. All right. Before we end off today, tell, like, give us some food for thought. You know, our listeners are now into the whole conundrum of their pricing and value and their literacy or illiteracy about this. Um, Food for thought, word of inspiration. What would you say? I'll go back to the thing I, I mentioned before, which is that growth path of bringing on more people and nobody is particularly responsible for pricing. I think one of the things, if you do buy into this idea that it's it's a process, not an event, you have owners in your company for every other process that you value, right? Every other value-driven activity, you've got customer support, there, someone's there managing tickets and someone's there managing the people that are managing tickets, right? So if, you're, if you really do buy that, like, okay, we're investing all this money in acquisition. I've got a whole marketing team and sales go to market team that I'm, 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 you know, asking to be responsible for revenue. You should be have the same thing for pricing. And usually what I recommend is that if you don't have an explicit owner of pricing, you should do that, but then also surround them with a pricing committee. Uh, you know, so pricing council sometimes referred to, uh, because it will affect everybody there at the, at the executive table. And so you want to make sure that all opinions are heard early and often. Um, and it also helps pr- provide a regular cadence and culture by which these ideas are explored and not just, 
well, I don't know. Nobody kind of owns it. And I kind of mentioned it to the CEO and he doesn't really know what to do. So I stopped talking about it. Right. It's like, no, this is normal. This, But for everything else that matters in the organization, we have ownership, we have a, a culture and a set of processes. So I think that's something that is pragmatic. Right. And it doesn't have to meet weekly, you know, start, start monthly or quarterly uh, and, and build from there. Well said. And I will say that that is a mic drop statement that pricing is not an event. It's a process. Dan, thank you. This has really been fun and enlightening at the same time. You definitely know your, your way around the pricing world. Good job. Thank you. I try. <laughs> That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today or you laughed at Dan at me, go tell somebody about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with a tidbit from the show. And thank you for listening to Disruption Interruption, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This advice is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal healthcare or financial advice or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal issue or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency client relationship between Joto PR and the user.